This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Thank you for listening to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rashi Christie. This is the show where we help you answer the question, why should I become a Christian? Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And today's topic is going to be about the accuracy of the New Testament. If you'd like to call in and talk to us about that, you can call 609-398-1020. Our website is evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. There you'll find archived shows. You can also check us out on Facebook. We have a new Facebook page. And you can find us also on iTunes. You can listen to our podcast there. Also, don't forget to check out the ratiochristi.org website. We're just all over the place, aren't we? I'm telling you. Well, Kirk, we've got a great quote of the day since we are talking about the New Testament we're going to take a break from C.S. Lewis quotes and this quote is provided by Apologetics 315 another great apologetics website and it's a quote from Daniel Wallace who I hope many know is a terrific scholar on the New Testament and this quote says the wealth of material that is available for determining the wording of the original New Testament is staggering. More than 5,700 Greek New Testament manuscripts, as many as 20,000 versions, and more than 1 million quotations by patristic writers, so that's the early church fathers. He says, in comparison with the average ancient Greek author, the New Testament copies are well over a thousand times more plentiful. If the average size manuscript were two and a half inches thick, all the copies of the works of an average Greek author would stack up four feet high, while the copies of the New Testament would stack up over a mile high. This is indeed an embarrassment of riches. That quote from Daniel B. Wallace. And I can't believe... uh you, uh, we've been talking about the uh, reliability of the Old Testament the past couple of weeks, and you uh, published a diagram on our Facebook page that showed the difference between, you know, how many manuscript copies we have of the New Testament and, uh, you know, other ancient documents like the Iliad and the Odyssey and all those kind of things. And we actually had some people write in and, and disagree with that. One guy said, oh, that's not true. And I'm right. like, oh, what a great argument. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. And uh, uh, you challenged him on it, and he had no response. No, he either fell asleep or disappeared or something. I don't know. Right. Well, it kind of makes you wonder why people are so distrustful of the truth of the evidence for the New Testament, the evidence for the existence of God that we talk about on this show. Well, we might now have an answer, at least a partial answer. 
There was a very interesting study recently published by Ara Norenzayan et al. from the Department of Psychology from the University of British Columbia in Canada. And the title of the article is Mentalizing Deficits Constrain Belief in a Personal God. What does that mean? She means that if you have a mental deficit, if you have autistic-like developmental problems, that can constrain your belief. That can prevent you from believing in God. Hmm. So, So this is a really interesting study. It's actually a compendium of four different studies that addressed the same topic in different ways. And so they took these four studies and combined them into this article. So let's talk about this a little bit more in depth. What is autism? Autism is a disorder of brain development where there's an alteration in the way that the neurons and the the synapses between the neurons connect that affects information processing in different ways. And of course, I think people probably realize that there are different levels of autism from virtually fully functioning to very debilitating. And one of the things that these authors point out is that Autistic, and they they studied, uh, in particular, they studied adolescent-aged autistic children. Uh, So they point out that autistic adolescents have less of a belief in God compared to uh, neurologically normal adolescents. And that there's a direct correlation that corresponds to the degree of autism. So the worse their autism, then the less likely they are to believe in God. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. So they wanted to try to decide then what about autism caused this atheism? What what caused the atheism in uh, autistic uh, children? So they they looked at the idea what they called mentalizing, and that is the ability to reason about other minds. Okay, so to the ability to take into consideration other people's thoughts and to uh, empathize. They called it the empathy quotient. So they they also used, uh, in one of the studies, they used a test where they tried to see how well a person could determine what someone was thinking by looking at their eyes. Okay. So, and that goes right in with, along with the, the empathy and thinking about how other people might be thinking. So this is kind of your ability to get out of yourself. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so that what they found is that this particular portion of autism, what they call mediated this relationship. So it it controlled for this. So you could have worse autism, but if you were still able to mentalize properly, then you would be more likely to believe in God. Or conversely, if your autism was not quite so bad, yet you were really bad at mentalizing or empathizing with others, then you were, again, less likely to believe in God. So they looked at some, they had some controls and comparisons. They also looked at uh, what they called systematizing, which they describe as an interest in in, uh, physical or rule-based systems. And they also looked at conscientiousness and agreeableness, and none of those things seemed to matter. Those, those things didn't affect the atheism and its relationship to autism. Hmm. So the other thing that they found is that uh, they were aware that males are more likely to be atheists than females. So they compared 
males to see if it was also a mentalizing effect in males, and it turned out that it was. So if you're male and you have a mentalizing deficit, you're unable to empathize with others, then you are more likely to be an atheist. So they showed that mentalizing deficits, mentalizing deficits, autism, and atheism were uh, more commonly found in males. We were so, talking. Uh, we were talking about this earlier, and after you described all this, I joked that uh, it sounds like this mentalizing deficit uh, applies to people that cut you off in traffic too. <laughs> yeah, because they don't they don't see you as another person in the car; they just see a metal thing that they can cut off. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So <laughs> if that happens to you in the future, you can go well. Either that. No, even if that person is autistic, you can say, oh, there goes another atheist. Or he has a, he has a mentalizing problem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And therefore, if he has a mentalizing problem, he's more likely to be an atheist. <laughs> now, um, so a couple more interesting things from this study. It showed that IQ was unrelated. All right. So it wasn't the case that if you were autistic and developmentally delayed and you were you had therefore a low IQ that did not correlate with belief in God or not um, so just having a low IQ is not correlated to atheism um, okay. th that didn't seem to matter and we Apart also we also discussed that uh, this isn't an excuse for not believing in God either it's not that you can't believe in God if you have these mentalizing problems it just means you might be a little more prone to not believing in God, but you can still be convinced otherwise. That's right. And it's also, we don't want to commit the genetic fallacy where we say, well, you just don't believe in God because you have a mentalizing deficit, because you, you have problems with your neurons and you have some kind of brain developmental problem. Right. Uh, therefore, we don't have to address any evidences pro or con for the existence of God or not. You can't use the born that way excuse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You still have to. It, it might be, even though it appears there's a causal relationship between brain development, failure of brain development, and atheism, that doesn't mean that atheism is automatically wrong. It could be that atheism is true, and it is also related to brain development problems. So you have to realize that those, uh, you know, you don't want to make that genetic fallacy. You still have to look at the evidence. You still have right. to uh, look at the evidence for the existence of God. Or if any atheist ever did give some evidence for atheism, you would, you would still have to look at it. In other words, yeah. your genes or your tendency to think in a certain way doesn't prove that God exists or doesn't exist one way or the other. That's right. And this kind of brain development also, it may not be uh, genetic. It may also be environmental. So uh, that's an issue, too. You know, if it's something chemical that uh, as you were growing up, your brain didn't develop properly, it, it's not necessarily. Although I think autism, if I recall, I think autism is does have at least some genetic components. Um, some parents are more likely to have autistic children than others. So a couple other things that they talked about in the study was kind of interesting. Part of the study looked at American adults and it showed that, or I guess it was known ahead of time, that conscientiousness and agreeableness are related to Christian belief. So they called it 
religious belief, but they did say that these were studies of American adults, so we can assume, safely assume, uh, assuming that it was a, represent- uh, you know, a representative sample, which they uh, obviously tried to get, then it would be Christian belief. So Christian belief is related to, uh, linked to conscientiousness and agreeableness, <laughs> but none of those things mediated this problem of the autism or being male. So um, those those two things were still linked to more likely that you would be uh, an atheist than even if you were uh, conscientious or you were agreeable. Interesting. So, so is this causal, right? Is it failure to develop properly? It, does it cause? Well, first they say that there's a very strong link um, they looked at the issue of, well, maybe it could be that males are more likely to go into math or science or engineering, and maybe the training in math, science, and engineering cause you to lose belief in God, and they said that they controlled for that, so that's actually not an, an issue. So they here's a quote from their study. It says, mentalizing deficits are one pathway among several to disbelief. Uh, so they do uh, seem to say that it is causal, um, but they also say that there are other causes for atheism, one being deliberative rejection. Okay, and of course, uh, that we recognize. There are people who sit down and think about it hard, and they just decide that they can't believe that God exists. Um, or they and don't then there's want to. also another cause they, they identified was the absence of cultural context. So, in other words, if you grow up in where your cultural context, there isn't any discussion of God, um, there's no expectation for belief in God, you live in an atheistic family, uh, your friends tend to be atheistic, your, your culture is atheistic, you're a lot less likely to uh, be a theist. You're a lot more likely to be an atheist. So that is another cause of atheism. Sure. Well, that doesn't surprise me. No, no, nothing Nothing here is really surprising except for the fact that it does appear that um, neural developmental problems cause uh, atheism um, because uh, they reduce the ability to reason about other minds. So, uh, so that's, the, that's the really new interesting thing about this. But it does point out, I mean, I think this is really important, that this absence of cultural context, you know, as... Uh, Christianity has kind of been pushed aside by the secularizers, by the militant atheists. It does cause others to not realize that God exists. It does cause them not to think about it, not to ever come across the idea or or to think that maybe I should look and see what evidence there is that God exists. So, therefore, they're a lot less likely to be exposed to that evidence, and they're a lot less likely to believe that God exists. Yeah, well, I think there's a cultural context today also that definitely uh, tries to convince us that, well, there really is no convincing evidence one way or the other, so don't bother to check it out because you can't prove it one way or the other. Yeah, that's right, and that's the way I was growing up. I mean, it it never occurred to me that there might be evidence for God. I thought that it was just a known thing. It was a given thing that there was no evidence for God. Yeah, well, I thought the same thing. I thought that well, you either just believe it or you or you don't. I I when I was younger, I didn't think in context of I wonder if there's any solid evidence for or against this. It wasn't until later in my 20s that I started to think, you know, maybe I can check this out to see if there's any evidence to support this or not. Right. Right. Yeah, and uh 
same thing was basically for me. I, I don't know where I came up with that idea that there was no evidence for God other than to say that I just believed that God was kind of otherworldly. You know, he was spiritual. We lived in a physical world. Um, he was kind of outside of the ability to do any testing. Right. And so, therefore, there was no real way to know whether he existed. So, for, for instance, I guess, you know, in other words, even if there wasn't any evidence, you still couldn't know whether or not he existed because he could live essentially uh, outside of the physical world. Right. So um, it wasn't until I really accidentally stumbled across the evidence that God exists that I uh, realized that uh, it was really true and became a Christian. Right. And let's face it, there's also an attitude in today's society that um, uh, people, no matter what they might believe inside, most people, I would even go so far as to say, live like there isn't a God. So, of course, you're going to, when you're a little kid and you're growing up and you get these vibes that, you know, nobody deals with this, nobody talks about this, well, I guess there's nothing to it. Right, right. Now, and we should point out, we've talked about in past shows that sociologists have shown and published that young children, infants, do have an innate belief in God that they are born with. Right. So, so even if they are born into a secular culture where there are no reference points for belief in God, they will innately believe in God from birth. Right. Um, so uh, so that's, a, that's a really interesting finding. It, 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 it takes isolating that person from any mention of God uh, in order to get them to convert to uh, atheism uh, later in life. Or essentially, they have to be talked out of their belief in God later on in life. Yeah, essentially, exactly right. Um, no, so we should mention again, let me just mention this study again for people who want to look it up. It was called Mentalizing Deficits Constrained Belief in a Personal God. The main study person was Ara Norenzayan from the Department of Psychology at the University of British Columbia. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And today we are talking about the accuracy of the Bible, the accuracy of the New Testament. If you'd like to join the conversation or ask us questions, the call-in line is 609-398-1020. Well, Kirk, we have been talking about the accuracy of the Old Testament so let's jump into the accuracy of the New Testament today. And I want to try to stress some of the actual verses from the New Testament that we can look up and read for people to see. Or and, to hear. What's that? Or to hear. They can't necessarily see it on the radio. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just exactly. a little detail there. <laughs> <laughs> so... Historians have been telling us that the closer an author is to the time and place of the events that he writes about, then the more accurate he is. So that's one of the ways that we can weigh the evidence that supports the uh, New Testament. The proposition is that the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses, or at least the contemporaries of eyewitnesses, people who lived in that generation, in that place. So this would add a tremendous amount of authority to the Scripture if it's true that it was written by eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. 
Well, what we know is that three of the four Gospels were written uh, or are written as eyewitness accounts. So let's take a look at what those, those were. So, so Mark was written as the eyewitness account of Peter. Uh, you have Matthew and John, but then Luke, who was not an eyewitness, constructed his account from eyewitness testimony of, by contemporaries. So uh, let's take a look at John 19.35. And Kirk, if you'd go ahead and read the verses, that'd be very helpful. Right. Uh, that verse in John says, And he saw it bore record, and his record is true. And he knows that he says truly that you might believe. There you go. So he's saying, I know this is true. I, I'm testifying. I'm bearing record that this is what really happened. I saw it, and what I'm telling you is true. Yeah, it's almost like a legal statement, like he attached this to say, you know, I hear verify that this is true because I saw it. Exactly. <laughs> All right, how about Luke then? Uh, Luke, in the opening to his biography about Jesus, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 talks about where he got his information. Yes, in that verse, Luke says... Since, as is well known, many took in hand to put in proper order, again, a complete narrative concerning the matters fully accomplished among us, even as they delivered them unto us, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Okay. So that's really an interesting couple of verses there. It says, let's see here, it is well known. Okay, so he's saying it's well known. Right. Gen it's generally known. Lots of people know about this. Right. Right. And many have took in hand, right? Many took in hand or many, you know, basically sat down to write to put into proper order a complete narrative, right? And it's uh, concerning the matters that were fully accomplished among us. So many. So what's many? Well, he at least has to be talking about at least two, right? Or three, probably three, but at or least more. two. Right. Well, it's many. So what, you know, what does many mean? You know, it can't be that he that he's talking about just one. Right. Right? Now, what do we know about the order in which the New Testament was written? Well, we think that Mark was first possibly an early version of Matthew. Uh, was first, so that there's at least two that we know for certain were before Luke. And do we find evidence that Luke uh, used Mark uh, and and uh, an early version of Matthew, which some scholars call Q? Yes, it does appear that he did. So, so he did use those. And so, it, did he use a third one? Was there a third one that we don't know about? Possibly, but but at least those two. And he might have even spoken to some of the eyewitnesses himself while he was writing his account. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he certainly was there. Uh, so we know he was in the, in the Judea region um, for several years and certainly had the opportunity. And, and as he says, it's well known. Uh, so it's not like he was writing about something that was obscure and people didn't know about it. I've read many times how accurate a historian Luke appears to be from his writings and how thorough he appears to be in the research that he did in writing what he wrote. And uh, this is just more evidence of that, that, you know, uh, a newspaper reporter today, if he's reporting on a story, what's the first thing he's going to do? He's going to go search out the eyewitnesses of whatever it is he's writing about or the experts and, you know, get the expert opinion on it. And apparently that's what Luke did. Absolutely. And we will, as we get into the archaeology 
we will look at some of what uh, Luke accurately recorded. Yeah, that's really interesting. So the exciting thing about this use of eyewitness testimony is that God could have spoken through anyone, right? He could have revealed his truth about the need for salvation, the uh, sinful nature of man, and the need that we have to get right with God in order to be saved. He could have used anyone to write that. But the fact that he used eyewitnesses, that he spoke through people who were there at the time, uh, should give us extra confidence in, in the Bible. Right. So uh, let's look at what John said. Here's uh, 1 John 1, 3. Okay, that says, That which we have seen and heard we declare unto you. There again, another statement from an eyewitness. So, and again, notice that he says we, right. not just me, but we. Right. There, there are many eyewitnesses. Well, here's what Peter said in Second Peter 1, 16. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There you go. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it is. So there, this idea that there was some kind of a legendary accrual of information decades later, and these men just kind of followed along with that and, you know, added all this stuff. Peter just puts the kibosh on it uh, right here, you know. Yeah, it's like we didn't right devise the- this. This wasn't devised by anyone else. Has nothing to do with fables. Right at the beginning, he seems to be dealing with, he seems to be um, anticipating that people are going to come along and say stuff like, oh, you know, this stuff is just a bunch of myths and legends or whatever. And he deals with it right at the outset and says, nope, that's not what it is. We actually saw and heard this stuff that we're reporting here. Exactly. So, so there were many eyewitnesses. And then another really important evidence is that God used Paul uh, as a witness Yet he was a former enemy of the gospel, Yep. right? But his life was dramatically changed, and because he was an enemy of the gospel, of the information about Jesus, it makes him one of the most credible witnesses of all. Yeah. So another exciting evidence. This, for- would al- this would almost be like Richard Dawkins coming out today and becoming a Christian and then becoming the new Billy Graham. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And telling people that I did this because I examined the evidence. Yeah, that would be absolutely. And that's the kind of thing it was. I mean, Paul was their worst enemy. He was their nightmare. Yeah. And yet he saw the risen Christ and he proclaimed it. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the issues that we want to address is the evidence that there was an early proclamation. Okay. The fact that there was an early proclamation of the resurrection and of the uh, truth about Jesus prevents any of this kind of legendary accrual to have occurred. Let's say that after the death of Jesus on the cross, say around A.D. 30, let's say that 20 years later, 20 years go by, and then maybe some of the um, apostles begin to start telling people, hey, you know, do you remember back when Jesus was crucified? You know, did you know that he rose from the dead? Uh, You know, that's the kind of situation that the skeptics claim happened. But that just flies in the face of the archaeological and historical evidence that we have. Mm -hmm. 
So specifically, we can look at the historian Tacitus, who wrote about the persecution of the Christians in AD 64. So we're talking about 30 years later, right? 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And he said that Christianity had spread throughout Judea and was popular even in Rome. And, And he actually called the Christians a class of people. So this was not just a small group of people. It was a significant portion of the population 30 years later and hundreds of miles away from the source are recognized as being a class of people. So there's large numbers of people in the Roman population who are Christians. And you notice that he said that it started in Judea. So it was, it started early. It started from Judea, the location that the the events happened in, and it spread throughout the Roman world, including Rome. Tacitus is a Roman writer, right? Yeah, he's a Roman historian. He was talking about the fire that destroyed Rome and the how Nero blamed it on the Christians. Right. So he was, I believe, he lived in the second century, I think, I think in the early second century, and uh, was writing about what happened during the first century. Right. So other uh, early historians and, and non-biblical writers substantiate the accuracy and the, the early spread of the Gospels. So everything that we know from outside sources matches exactly with this early spread idea that that it did not wait decades there was no delay in getting the word out that it that it got out right away right and you see this in the new testament as you as you read through the book of acts and you read some of the letters uh, from the apostles and from paul you see how this idea of a that the well, basically, the eyewitnesses claim that those people around them, their contemporaries, know already what's going on. Right. In other words, they're not proclaiming something that nobody knew about. Right. They're proclaiming things that people already know about. So they say things like, you are also witnesses. You saw this, not just me, uh-huh. but you did. So this is completely different from, the, for instance, the Gnostic Gospels like the uh, Gospel of Thomas, which calls itself the secret Gospel of Thomas. Well, why do you think they had to call it the secret Gospel of, Com- uh, of Thomas? Because nobody knew about it. Exactly. <laughs> nobody knew about it. Wow. You know, here it is, second century, a hundred years later after the event, somebody comes along with a Gospel of Thomas and, and everybody's going, I didn't know Thomas wrote a Gospel. <laughs> Oh, that's right. Oh, let's put that in in the first line in the in the opening statement, the secret gospel of Thomas. That's because it was a secret. <laughs> so, right, and I guess people believed that. I mean, there were plenty of Gnostics out there because we know about the early church historians who talked about uh, the rampant belief in Gnosticism. Uh, so there were people that fell for that. Yep. I mean, you know, I guess... Secret information is somehow better, you know, or more convincing, I guess, than public information. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> it's more secret. 
<laughs> what, what did she say? It's more secret. You have to be in the inner circle to know that's, about this. Yeah, that's right. You're, you're, wow, you're really cool. You're really <laughs> on the inner circle. And, you know, the Gnostics did have this kind of secretiveness. They were, they were a mystery religion like other mystery religions, you know, right. that had um, secret meetings, you know, underground meetings, secret parties. You had to pay money to be, get these things revealed to you. They actually had secret handshakes. <laughs> right. Um, all this stuff. I mean, you know, whatever it took to, to keep people feeling important and uh, to keep the money flowing in. Now, this really reminds me as a contrast to when Pontius Pilate is interviewing Jesus before his crucifixion, where Pilate asked him a question on the level of, you know, what is this stuff that you've been teaching around here that's causing such a fuss? And Jesus's response was, why do you ask me that? Why don't you go out and ask anybody out on the street? They all know about it. They've all heard it. Right. You know, everything he said, he, he said and did out in the public where people saw it. That's right. And the same kind of thing went on later with the disciples. They publicly announced everything early on. So let's take a look at some of these claims, some of these uh, statements that are in Acts and uh, parts of the New Testament. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 32. Okay, that says, this Jesus has God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Right. So this is the early proclamation at Pentecost, where Peter is saying to a big big crowd, we're all witnesses of this, right? Yep. Yep. That Jesus, has, that God raised him up. How about Acts uh, 3.15? Okay, and that says that they killed the prince of life, whom God has raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Right. So again... We are all witnesses. Everybody knows about this. How about Acts 13.31? And that says, And he was seen many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. Okay. So many people and over many days. So Now this is referring to his appearances after his crucifixion, right? Correct. That many people saw him after he rose from the dead. Yep. So, and the people in Galilee and Jerusalem are all witnesses. So, uh, right. how about Acts twenty six twenty six? That says, for the king knows of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. All right. So, this is Paul before King Agrippa, and he is trying to defend himself. He, you know, he is showing how the Jews want to kill him, so he needs to be kept safe. He wants to appeal to Caesar, and he wants to be taken to Rome for trial. So he says to King Agrippa, you know about these things, yep. right? These things were not done in a corner. This Everyone is, knows about them. This is not a secret gospel. It's public. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So he didn't even have to try to convince King Agrippa, uh, that these co these things actually happened. He knew King Agrippa already knew about them. So uh, so that kind of attestation just really proves that the procl the proclamation was very early, and it was right there where the events happened. You know, it wasn't like oh the apostles ran away to Syria. And then all this information and stuff started happening in Syria, and Christianity started in Syria, and then later came back to Jerusalem. No, it right. happened right there. Yep. Well, let's look also at another appeal to uh, common knowledge, and that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. So, And this is Paul 
talking about what he was taught when he first became a Christian. So now we're talking A.D. 33, A.D. 34, somewhere in that time frame, possibly as early as A.D. 32. So, uh, so Kirk, what's that say? Yeah, this one section is almost like an outline of the gospel in itself. It says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, who was Peter, then by the twelve, and that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this day, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all he was also seen by me, as by one born out of due time. There you go. So this is a really interesting section of Scripture, because it shows exactly how detailed the and how full the gospel was at this early time. Again, remember, we're talking about two years or so after the crucifixion when Paul was converted. Right. So he says that he was, this is first of all, that which I also received, right? How Christ died for our sins. So Christ was crucified for our sins according to the scriptures. So that means that, now now let's, let's make this clear that this is an uh, early statement of faith. So Paul was taught to memorize this just as early believers were taught to memorize this, and this was passed on. So this is like, you know, today you'll see church websites and they'll have a statement of faith. Here is what we believe. That's exactly what this is. And we know right. this from the language that is found from the meaning of the Greek words and how they match statements of faith. So this is a an official statement of faith that, that Paul would have been taught from and taught to uh, repeat, to recite. This is almost like an early creed. Exactly, like an early creed. It, it is an early creed, probably the earliest one. Right. So Christ was crucified, and see how early on they recognized that this was in the fulfillment of prophecy. Yep. So according to the scriptures, it says that he was buried and that he rose again. So you've got the uh, burial and empty tomb. Um, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, again, just as was prophesied. Uh, in places like Isaiah chapter 53, uh-huh. where it talks about the Messiah, that he would be killed uh, for the sins of others. And then it says that, and then he would see the light of life, it says. Uh-huh. Um, now, here's an, another attestation that this is early. The, the next line says, and that he was seen by Cephas. Okay. Well, Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. Right. Okay. It's not the Greek name. So that means that this early creed, this statement of faith, was written in Aramaic. It was taught in Aramaic and learned in Aramaic. It happened right there in Judea. It happened right there where the events occurred. Mm -hmm. Later on, when Christianity spread outward into the Roman world, into the Greek-speaking world, later on, Peter was called Peter. But... uh, Early on, he was called Cephas, and that's where you see this coming from. Yeah, cool. So, and then, of course, you get all the statements of all the different 
eyewitnesses. And you notice something very important here. This, again, shows the authenticity of this statement compared uh, to the authenticity of the Gospels. You notice that he leaves out that the women found or were the first to see Jesus. Hmm. Right? It says, who does it say saw him first? Cephas. Right. right? And then the twelve. Right. But we know from the gospel accounts that the women saw him first. So why in an official statement, an official doctrine statement, did it not say the women? Well, this is because Paul, probably because Paul was a uh, prominent religious leader. And to, you know, we've discussed this before, that the testimony of women back then wasn't held in high regard. So he wouldn't want to admit necessarily in public that, oh, the first people to see Jesus risen from the dead were women, because then a bunch of people might say, oh, well, we can't trust that kind of evidence. Exactly. So he left that out. (laughs) That exactly right. And so when you were taught the official church uh, creed, you were not taught, they didn't put in that the women saw Jesus first, but in the Gospels, which are, instead of being the products of uh, church doctrine later on are the actual accounts of what really happened. They do put the women saw Jesus first in because that's what actually happened. Right. Okay. Uh, let's see. We've got about 10 minutes left in the show, so let's try and get through some more of this evidence about the accuracy uh, of the New Testament. One thing is that historians have had really no trouble in matching up the narratives of Luke and Paul that we find in the New Testament to any of the extra-biblical information. Uh, Sometimes there have been pieces missing, and so scholars have doubted, hey, maybe this didn't happen the way Paul said it or the way Luke said it. And then along comes some archaeological evidence that shows that it actually did. Um, The records of non-Christian writers at the time, those match the accounts of the New Testament. Um, We talked about Tacitus, who lived from... Uh, A.D. 55 to A.D. 117. His account exactly matches what the New Testament says. Pliny the Younger, who was governor in Asia Minor uh, during the years 109 and 110, he writes about Christianity, exactly matches what we see in the, in the New Testament. Uh, even the second century satirist Lucian. So here's this guy who writes very vitriolic comedy a very denunciating of the quote-unquote Christians, yet what he has to say matches the eyewitness testimony and the early proclamation of uh, the gospel message. Hmm. We also have the historian Josephus, who lived from A.D. 37 to A.D. 100. He confirms such things as the famine in Judea that's described in Acts 11.28. He talks about the death of Herod that's talked about in Acts chapter 12. He confirms uh, the existence of John the Baptist, confirms the existence of Jesus, confirms the existence of James, the brother of Jesus, uh, confirms the fact that Jesus was a miracle worker, that he was put to death by Pontius Pilate. Um, you know, all these things. Now, um, I think we'll skip. There's a section. I have it. I have in our notes a section that's written by Josephus, and it seems that it was uh, slightly adulterated uh, by later 
uh, copyists and there was some things put in about Jesus being the Messiah into it. But we know now that if you just remove those mentions of Jesus being the Christ, that you do have a underlying historical record of Josephus talking about Jesus as a quote-unquote miracle worker. And one of the ways we know that is because we have found another document uh, that doesn't have those um, kind of flowery stuff about Jesus being the Messiah. You mean an earlier document of Josephus? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Right. But it still has the basic information about Jesus' life. information that Jesus was a miracle worker, that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, etc. Right. Which matches the New Testament. Exactly. Exactly right. So then we've got other archaeological evidence. We've got things like the fact that Luke uses the proper titles for various officials that he talks about throughout the Roman Empire. So he gets names like Tetrarch, you know, who was a Tetrarch, who was a king, who was a proconsul, who was a governor. He gets all those titles right. And there were lots of different ones, and they kept changing. So only somebody who lived at that time in that place visited those or talked to somebody who did could have known um, and got all of those right. You discussed that a couple of weeks ago about how many of these uh, uh, titles that were floating around at the time and how uh, Luke gets every one of them correct. Exactly. Which someone who didn't live at that time probably would not have been able to do that. No, absolutely. In fact, we have evidence from non-biblical historians who did live at that time, people like Tacitus, people like Josephus, who did get things wrong. And we know archaeologically that they got them wrong. Right. And yet the New Testament writers do not get them wrong. How about that? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's because Tacitus and Josephus and others were writing about, uh, well, sometimes they wrote about things that happened in their own time, but sometimes they were writing about things that happened before they were alive, and right. that's when they get things wrong. Right. So the fact that the New Testament authors get them right is evidence that they did write them at that time. They were alive then in the right place. Um, here's a, a quote from uh, scholar A.N. Sherwin-White. He says, any attempt to reject Uh, its historicity, talking about the book of Acts, its historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. So they just take it for granted that Acts is correct. Mm -hmm. And we know that Acts was written about 60 AD, um, and we also know that the book of Luke was written before the book of Acts. So that's even before Acts uh, 60 AD, sometime in the 50s. Right. And, of course, both written by the same guy. And there's also no disagreement with what Luke wrote, with what Paul wrote. So Paul wrote all of his letters to the churches between 49 and 61 A.D., and there is no conflict, which, of course, if they were making things up, there would be a conflict. Right. Paul reports that Jesus was put to death on a Roman cross, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, that his followers claimed to have seen him alive after his death and burial, and a lot of other details in his letters all match the accounts that Luke gives in the book of Acts. Yep. So, archaeologically, what do we have? Well, we've got things like the Pilate Stone that was discovered in 1961 in Caesarea. I actually got to go to Caesarea. They have uh, the real Pilate Stone uh, is in a museum, but they have a um, replica of the Pilate Stone sitting right there where they found it. 
Um, it mentions Pontius Pilate as prefect of Judea. Again, historians prior to this, some of them even doubted that um, that Pontius Pilate lived. Right. Then we also have the Delphi inscription, which is found in 1905. It was a letter from Claudius to Caesar Claudius to Gallio, who was proconsul of Achaia. This is exactly described in Acts 18:12, and uh, just uh, Greek uh, Roman trivia. Gallio was the brother of uh, the philosopher uh, Seneca. Hmm. So. Um, then we have the Caiaphas ossuary that was found in Jerusalem in 1990. We have the Sergius Paulus inscription that corroborates Acts 13.7. We have discovered the Pool of Siloam, which is described in John chapter 9. We've got the Pool of Bethesda that's been discovered. That confirms John chapter 5. And we've got uh, inscriptions of Lysanias who was Tetrarch of Abilene, and that's mentioned in Luke chapter 3. So, multiple, multiple attestation, all kinds of archaeological information. Amazing. So, um, even a real interesting inscription in Romans chapter 16, it talks about Erastus, the treasurer of the city, salutes you. Well, guess what? We found an inscription in a sidewalk that says Erastus uh, laid part of the sidewalk at his expense in appreciation for being elected treasurer. Cool. There you go. (laughs) Exactly as described in Romans uh, 16. Well, many other things that we could mention, um, but I think that pretty much covers it. I think that should convince most people that the Gospels are reliable. The Bible is accurate. What was written down in the Bible is actually true and accurate. Convinces me. (laughs) Well, I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. But always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!